Good morning, everyone. Again, it's a pleasure for me to be here, to be able to share this uh, conference time with you. And uh, I thank those who invited me to come. Now, would you like to turn, please, to the Epistle of James in chapter 1? James chapter 1. And verse number 1. James, a servant of God... Okay, we'll start again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the public reading of his word here this morning. In the ministry last evening, uh, somebody who featured uh, very highly in it was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And Larry told us something about him in his um, connections with the Old Testament, and particularly the Book of Kings, books of Kings, and uh, I myself uh, spoke about Elijah and his appearances in the New Testament in uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, I believe also in Revelation chapter 11 as one of my two witnesses. And it is just coincidental, nothing more, I would say, that in this epistle of James, our friend Elijah also figures in two verses in the last chapter and is described there as a man who had effective prayers and was able to supplicate the throne of grace and see answers to his prayers in difficult times. As far as this epistle is concerned that he has written, he describes it to us and uh, for us uh, in, in connection with the fact that he is writing to what you and I might say were refugees. But first of all, he describes himself. And as we think of um, uh, this epistle of James, we might wonder who he is. Now, there are at least four men in the New Testament who have the name of James. But it seems to be accepted that this James was the Lord's brother or half-brother, however you want to describe that. In other words, he was a son of Mary and Joseph, 
and uh, we'll come back to that family in a moment or two. It may be that in your Bible, as you look at the heading to this epistle, it might be described as the general epistle of James. And you might wonder why it is described as being general. Well, it is general in a sense because it is not particular. For example, it is not written to one individual, as some of the New Testament epistles are. Neither is it written to a church, as some of the New Testament scriptures are. But it is written generally to all who have opportunity to read it and to study it and to benefit from it. On the other hand, it may be that it is described as the general epistle of James on the basis that as far as believers of that day were concerned and as far as the early church was concerned after some discussions about canonicity, that this epistle is generally accepted or was generally accepted as being divinely inspired. There were many who wrote epistles in those days that were not divinely inspired. But the early church accepted that the epistle to James was indeed generally accepted as being written by divine inspiration. And of course, you and I today accept that also, that it is divinely inspired and brings many messages straight from God himself to our hearts. Someone has described this epistle also as it is very practical as being the Proverbs of the New Testament. And as you go through, you will see many things there that you could compare with statements in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Others have seen in this epistle many connections with the Sermon on the Mount. And you will remember the Lord Jesus delivered that Sermon on the Mount, and it does you, it will do your heart good, as and when you have opportunity, to read through this epistle of James and to see if you can recognize some thoughts, as it were, and expressions from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just introduce you to one or two of them. For example, if you look here at our verse 2, uh, James 1 and verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, and verse 12, this is what you have. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And down again and again, and I think I have marked in my Bible, at least a dozen, if not more, comparisons that you can make without having to stretch anything, comparisons that you can make with the uh, delivery on the, uh, and the wording in connection with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what I want to do is to suggest to you that this chapter 1 divides readily into three sections. The first section is all about trials. The second section is all about temptations. And the third section is all about how one should hear and respond to the Word of God having heard it. And of course, I believe that these are things that are of particular use today. One hymn writer asked the question in his hymn, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? 
I'm not quite sure which planet he or she lived on, but you and I would say today, there is trouble everywhere. And so it is that I trust that the, as a result of the ministry from James chapter one, during the rest of this conference, that you and I will be instructed how we might be able to respond to trials and temptations when they come into our lives. Now, what I want to do, as I say, is to start at verse 1 and go down the verses. Whether or not we shall get through all of the chapter or just a part of it, I don't know. But let's start anyway with chapter 1. James, I've already mentioned to you, I believe that he was the Lord's brother. But do see how he describes himself. It says, James, a servant of God. Now, the word servant here, the Greek word is doulos. It means a bond slave. So that James was not only describing himself as a servant, but he was making the particular point that he was a slave. One of the great things about the gospel message is that it sets men free. And yet here, having been set free, James willingly and voluntarily describes himself as a servant of God or a slave of God. Of course, to be a servant of God was something that was recognized in the Old Testament as being a worthy thing. Moses was a servant of God, and others, of course, were servants of God too. And here James describes himself as a slave or a servant of God. Somebody has asked the question, how do you know when you're a servant of God? Well, I suppose one of the ways that you know that you're a servant of God is when people treat you like a servant and you accept it. And if when people treat you like a servant, you find that irritating, then you can come to the conclusion, I suspect, that you're possibly not a servant of God. Slavery is involved, if you like, and yet loyal slavery, like the slave who would not leave his master in Old Testament days. And so here now, he, is described, he describes himself as a servant of God. And anybody stumbling upon this epistle, any Orthodox Jew stumbling upon this epistle, and seeing those words, a servant of God, would be hugely impressed. Because here was a writer whose words they were going to read, who had attained to that lofty position as being able to describe himself as a servant of God without any embarrassment and with great confidence to announce that he was indeed a servant or a slave of God. But I want you to observe what he says next. He says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our Orthodox Jew friend who was so impressed with the first phrase, a servant of God, would now be appalled by this second phrase because he says he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grammar of that indicates that James viewed God and the Lord Jesus Christ as being on the same level. Both were divine. Both were deity. The Father and the Son together. And yet this is remarkable because you will know that James and the Lord Jesus lived together in the same home for what I might think is about 25 years. And yet here now, again without any embarrassment, 
James describes his big brother as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, of course, it took quite a few years for that to be impressed upon James because he did not believe until after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, James lived close to the Lord Jesus. And when you live close to people over a period of time, you begin to find out what they're really like. You know, if you have good friends and you want to lose them, go on holiday with them because that very often doesn't work out. And you find out what they're really like, and even worse, they find out what you're really like. And maybe the friendship is not as heartfelt as it once was. But here James, perhaps for at least a quarter of a century, lived with the Lord Jesus. They lived in the same house. They ate at the same table. They played the same games. They may even have worked in the same carpenter shop. They may even have slept together. And so after 25 years of the closest possible scrutiny, James can remember not one thing that would now make him doubt that his big brother was truly the son of the living God, sinless and perfect, without the ability to sin at all. And so he calls him also Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that the two writers in the New Testament, James, and Jude, who was also the Lord's brother, when they are writing publicly about him, they call him Lord Jesus Christ. They give him his full title. Now, of course, when you read in the Bible and when you speak about the Lord Jesus, it is not always necessary to give him his full title. Indeed, sometimes it wouldn't work. There are times when the scripture speaks of him solely as Jesus, when it is emphasizing his manhood and his humanity. It speaks of him as Christ when it is emphasizing his messiahship. But I think it is necessary for you and I today to remind our hearts that it may be possible for you and for me to become over-familiar with the Son of God. And all we call him is Jesus. I would remind you that there is no evidence that the disciples who lived closely with him for three and a half years ever called him Jesus. What did they call him? Well, he said, you call me Lord, and that is good, for so I am. And therefore, you and I, no matter how close we get to him or how familiar we might become with him, should always endeavor, where possible, to give him his full title, Lord Jesus Christ. You'd say, I'm not used to saying that. Well, I would say, get used to saying it, because he'll be delighted by that. And um, the idea is, of course, that this title, Lord Jesus Christ, significantly is given by James and Jude as they wrote their epistle. You see, it's a mark of respect. When I was working um, for many years, I had the same young lady as my secretary, and I heard her say on the telephone sometimes, 
if somebody, one of my friends would phone up, they'd say, is Roy there? And she would reply, yes, Mr. Hill is here. A mark of respect. And so here now he says, Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that James describes himself this way. He might have said, and I would probably have said, and so might you in introducing ourselves, James, brother or half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There had been absolutely nothing wrong with that at all, because that was the truth. But he doesn't do that. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are two families in the spiritual things connected with the Lord's people. There is the natural family to which we all belong, our natural families, which bring us joy and delight and pain betimes. And yet we are bound together physically in the natural family. And we rejoice in that. And we have concern about those who have lost all of their natural family except themselves. But there's also a spiritual family. The spiritual family is bigger and greater and larger. And the spiritual family is not diminishing. Whatever you might think about the gospel in America and in Canada and in the UK, that it's not what it used to be. I tell you this, that that might be true, but in other parts of the world, there have never been so many being saved as there are today. We should rejoice, not be depressed about the shortcomings of our own ministries, but rejoice. Other believers of other eras, if you like, have never had such an opportunity as you and I have to live in a day when the gospel is having free course and being glorified. And so our spiritual family keeps growing. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ recognized that. You remember he was in a house one day preaching, and somebody came along to him and said, uh, your mother and your brethren stand without desiring to speak to you. And he said to them, who is my mother and who are my brethren? He said, my brethren are those that hear the word of God and do it. You see, he was differentiating between the natural family and the spiritual family. The apostle Paul also did that in Romans chapter 16, when he's sending greetings to various people. He includes amongst those greetings, he said, send greetings to Rufus and his mother, natural family, and mine, spiritual family, because Paul was not a brother of Rufus, and Rufus's mother was not his, but spiritually, natural family, spiritual family. And what a joy today to belong to both families, to have a natural family. We should thank God for that, and to have a spiritual family in which we can also rejoice. And so here, John, I'm sorry, here, so here, James, uh, the Old Testament name of Jacob, of course, in writing this letter, speaks of his spiritual family and puts it on a higher level than the natural family. That is not to say that you can walk away from your responsibilities in your natural family, because you can't do that. Again, of course, in writing this letter, James uses clear language, everything is black and white, no grays with James, and as far as he is concerned also in this letter, there are over 40, maybe 50 words 
Greek words which are used only by James and no other New Testament writer. It's worth having a look at those as well. Now, that's who is writing the letter. He now addresses it to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Well, who are they? I take it that that phrase, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, is, if you like, a phrase which is used by James to include all Jewish believers, whether in Palestine or in other countries throughout the world. In fact, one might also take it to apply to all Christians, as it were, the new church of God, wherever its individuals might be found. And they're scattered abroad. You will recall that, uh, like in the Acts of the Apostles in the um, persecution that arose about Stephen, the believers were scattered abroad. And when you and I think of the word scatter, it's like an explosion, if you like, an explosion of persecution, which blows away everybody all over the place indiscriminately. But of course, the word scattering in the Bible does not mean that. It's the idea of a farmer scattering seed. Now, the farmer doesn't stand in the middle of the field on a windy day and throw the seed up in the air and hope for the best. He scatters it with skill and determination, determined that at least 99% of it will land on good ground. And when the Lord Jesus and God the Father scatters the people of God, as he did in these days in connection with the diaspora, he ensured that people were not just blown away, but were placed where he wanted them to be. It might be worth stopping to consider and asking yourself the question, where has he placed you? And why has he placed you there? You might imagine better places where you could be placed, but God can't imagine any better place for you than where he's placed you now. And therefore, why would God choose to place you, for example, in Claremont, or in New Jersey, or me in Pensford Assembly in England? Because in his mind, that is the place where he wants me to be, where he can best work on me and enable me to turn into the kind of Christian that he always planned for me to be. So before you move on somewhere, to another church in the same location, or to another location, you need to be absolutely, totally convinced that that's what God wants you to do. It's easy to get that wrong. Scattered abroad. And then he uses this lovely word at the end of the um, epistle. Those that are scattered abroad, greeting, he says, greeting, greeting. It means rejoice. Well, that's a very strange thing. Who was he writing to? Refugees scattered abroad. They had fled mainly from Jerusalem. They had lost their homes. Some had lost their families. Others had lost their business. Some had lost everything. And now here they were scattered abroad. And many of them had nothing. Even before the scattering, they could have been described as the poor saints at Jerusalem. Poverty marked them. And now here is James saying, greeting. Rejoice, cheer up, it's not so bad as it looks. Now, if James had been giving this address in a meeting rather than writing a letter, you know, the chairman might have said to James beforehand, you know, the big shot who comes down from Jerusalem, he wasn't poor, he wasn't scattered anywhere, he had stuck it out in Jerusalem, 
And the chair might have said to him, now James, do be careful because uh, these people are all refugees, most of them of nothing, and uh, really, you know, they have, will be suspicious of you. So you take care. And James stands up in front of them and he says, cheer up. Well, how are they going to react to that, I wonder? Well, they might say, well, James, it's all right for you. You have not had the persecution that we have had. You have not had the trying circumstances that we've lived through. Speak for yourself, James. And of course, the chair might have said to James, well, look, James, have another go to get started. And James would have said, and Paul would have said, amen, had he been there. James might have said, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And so he's going to have to say some things now to prove or to, to, to justify why he says such a thing to the believers then and today. I do not know your circumstances. I do not know the pressures of your life or, or, or family. Some today in this meeting, I suspect, do feel sad and not without cause. But on the authority of the word of God today, I say to you, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord with all your heart. And of course, that is sometimes difficult to do. But let me take you on a little further here. I talked about the natural family, James, the brother of Jesus and, Je and Jude and others. It was a big family, by the way. Apart from the Lord Jesus, there were four other sons and two or three daughters in the family. So he had a, a lovely natural family. But now look what James, the big man from Jerusalem, says to the refugees to whom he is writing, verse 2, my brethren, my brethren. And you will find that phrase, my brethren, or my beloved brethren, 14 times in this epistle. My brethren, James loved the people of God, and that was ample evidence, of course, that he loved God himself. Now he says in verse number 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. One of my children, when they were young, asked me what temptations divers had. And um, <laughs> it's uh, old language, but it's good language. And um, when you fall into divers temptations. Now, I want to, in true Irish fashion, if I may, take that verse backwards. Start at the end and go backwards. Temptations. Now, I describe this section as not being about temptations, but about trials. The Greek word is the same word for trials and temptations. And one must judge by the context whether it is a trial or a temptation that is being spoken, spoken about. You might say, well, what's the difference? When is something a trial or when do I know it's a temptation? How do I know? Well, there are a number of different ways. For example, a temptation is used by Satan to try to make you fall. A trial is used by God to help to make you fly. A temptation is used by Satan to make you sink. A trial is used by God to make you soar. 
A temptation is used by Satan to kill you off your Christian testimony. And a trial is used by God to encourage you to endure and never to fall off like that. Again, also, a temptation happens slowly. You might compare that with um, what's said, for example, and I'll talk about this later, um, down in the second part of the chapter, verse 14. Just have a look at verse 14, and you'll see, even in our authorized version, how slow it is. Here's how slow it is, verse 14. But every man is tempted when? He is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. A trial happens quickly. Back to verse number two. When you fall into, you see? Somebody might say when they have been tempted to do something wrong and bad, it happened on the spur of the minute. I tell you this, it did not happen on the spur of the minute. There had been something already in your mind and in your heart. The only spur of the minute thing was when it appeared in front of you, but it had been working in your heart for some time. But more of that later. So what we're talking about here are trials. And there are different kinds of trials. There are trials, perhaps, of family. There are trials of assembly. There are trials of work. There are trials of business of one kind or another. There are trials that are financial in one way or another. Here he describes every possible kind of trial. And he makes this point. He said, these different trials, you fall into them. You fall into them. You didn't see them coming. The same word is used in the gospel story of the story of the man who was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into thieves. He didn't see them coming. He was ambushed, and he fell into thieves. And that's how quickly trials come. Or it might be that you are walking about in this lovely town or city. I don't know what it is, Claremont, but um, you're walking downtown, and... Uh, some uh, careless workman has left the top open, uh, top of a manhole, you see, and you're walking down with your ubiquitous plastic bags, having done your shopping, and, uh, and you're not looking around, you're heavenly minded, so you don't see uh, things around you, and uh, you suddenly fall into this, uh, into this hole, and you think, how did I get in here? What happened? When you fall into, you see, a trial will come quickly. It's like... The phone call at two in the morning. It's like the policeman standing outside your door bearing bad news. You fall into it. You didn't see it coming. Unexpected. And trials, of course, are to test you. If you happen to be out in the car park, getting out of your car, and as you get out, you casually slam the door and catch your finger in it at the same time. Now then, if there's anything going to catch you out about words that you shouldn't be saying, that's it, isn't it? You see, you didn't see it coming. It happened. It brought out the real you from inside, which is what a trial is all about. Do be careful when you're leaving and closing your door today. So he says, when you fall into, now I'm making the point, maybe badly, but I hope clearly, 
I'm making the point that trials come suddenly. Like somebody dies. Well, you say, but I saw it coming. But when it came, it was not a surprise, but it was a shock still, wasn't it? And so here now he says, count it all joy. Now, that seems strange, count it all joy, or it may be rendered, count it pure joy. Pure joy when I fall into temptation, when I fall into trials? You know, I've never yet any, met anybody, no matter how holy they might be, who in a trial rubs their hands and says, great, I'm having a lovely time. I'm enduring the worst trials of my life that I've ever had, and it is fantastic. People don't talk like that, do they? So how can you count it all joy? Well, I would suggest that it might be rendered this way. Count it as if it were all joy. We say, well, that doesn't make much difference to me. Count it. Well, uh, James here may be taking upon himself the sort of idea of an accountant. Now, Paul was a bit of an accountant too. Do you remember he, uh, in Philippians, had his profit and loss account? I count all things but loss, for on the prophet's side, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. So what's James saying here? James is saying this. Now look, whatever trial it is that you've been going through recently or in the past, whether it be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of other things in your life, I don't know. Whatever it is that happened to you, how do you look on it? You say, why me? Very many of us do that from time to time. But here's James's advice. Look upon what happened as an investment. Count it like that. In one of our companies, when I was working, we had, uh, uh, I was CEO, so they, when the books were checked each year by the auditors, they used to come in finally to have a sit down with me and to uh, try and catch me out on this and that and um, write something in the report, you see. And so they'd done all the work and they arrived in my office of this afternoon and uh, the leading man amongst them said, well, Mr. Hill, we are very pleased with the way things are looking and you've had a good year, and we will be able to make that report. But uh, we see that you invested during the year about one and a half million pounds on a new printing machine. I said, yes, that's true. They said, can we see it? Well, <clears throat> I said, yes, of course you can see it. I took them down to the shop floor, and there it was, a big web offset printing machine printing and folding sheets of paper at something like 20,000 copies an hour, or even more, maybe it was 30,000. I've been left now so long, I can't remember. But uh, I do remember the conversation. I said, there's the printing press. He said, as he looked at it running, he said, that is a great investment. I said, it's a printing press. He said, that is a great investment. And if you're able to make use of that investment and make that investment work, it will be a benefit to you, to the company, to the employees, to the suppliers, to everybody. Keep it going, he said. You see, 
if you can look upon what happened to you as an investment. An investment is there to bring a return, to bring a profit. And what happened to you can turn out not only in time to be a blessing to you, but to be a blessing to many other people as well. Because we all learn so that if we meet believers that are in any kind of trouble, said Paul, that we might be able or we will be able to comfort them with the comfort wherewith we ourselves were comforted by God. I think that's wonderful. And here now, the message of James to people undergoing trials and problems and difficulties in their lives, feeling disappointed, distressed, and downcast is, look at it differently. Look at it as if it were an investment. Knowing this, verse 3, knowing this. I think the idea is knowing this by experience, that the trying of your faith or the testing of your faith works patience. Uh, James later says, doesn't he, you have heard of the patience of Job. Well, have you? Have you? I'm not sure that I have. When I read through Job, I don't see too much patience there. But what I do see when I read through Job is endurance. And this word patience is better translated endurance. So that knowing this, that the trying of your faith works endurance. You say, well, I'm not too sure about that. Well, what has happened to you? I'm not suggesting you tell me because I have enough bother of my own, but um, uh, you're still here, aren't you? You've showed up today. You've endured. You know, I think in the early days of the church, Satan made great attempts to bash it down and the people involved with it, and he hit them here and they popped up here. So he hit them there and they popped up there. He couldn't keep them down. They endured. How did they endure as seeing him who is invisible, says Hebrews. And so he says now, knowing this, that your faith, the trying of your faith, worketh patience or endurance. Now somebody has described this um, first chapter of James as being like a string of pearls. Don't know how good you are at stringing pearls, but get your eye on this book now and I will show you parts of the string of pearls. You're looking at me, you're not looking at the book. I shall not continue until you look at the book. <laughs> the end of verse 3, patience. The start of verse 4, patience. The end of verse 4, wanting nothing. The beginning of verse 5, if you lack. Again, nothing wavering, verse 6. No, I'm sorry, let me do verse 9, it's easier. The brother of low degree, verse 10, but the rich, verse 9, is exalted, verse 10, is made low. You see, it's all strung together, and I think it has been beautifully described as a string of pearls. Verse 4, but let endurance have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So... When trials come into my life, here's something I know. Why has the trial been sent? 
that it might cause me to endure. And when I come through a trial, it gives me confidence. It gives me strength. If I've come through this, I can come through the next thing that God has sent for me into my life. Trial. Why does God try his people anyway? I mean, what's the point? We're saved and we're going to heaven. Let's get there. Why all these trials? Well, just suppose for a moment you're going to buy yourself a new automobile. You've been to the showroom. You've seen the one you want. You've chosen the color you want. And the man says, you can have it, but you'll have to wait three months for it. So three months later, you show up. And sure enough, there is the car looking beautiful. And the man says, provided you pay him there on the spot, you can drive it away. Uh, but you think that perhaps before you drive it away, you might just have a check of one or two things with him. And you, so you say to the man, well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I like the look of it, and it's exactly the color that I want. But tell me, uh, did you give this car a few tests? Um, did you switch on the ignition, and what happened when you did? And the man might say to you, well, actually, you know, we didn't do that. Because all these cars start first time. I mean, they, they do, I can assure you. And you might say to the man, well, <clears throat> you didn't then drive it around the block. I said, no, we didn't drive it around the block. And uh, therefore, you haven't tested the brakes. No. But generally speaking, on these cars, the brakes are quite good. Um, did you by any chance check that they remembered to put oil in the sump? And he would say, no, I didn't do that because we've never had a case where, you know, there hasn't been oil in the sump. Now, you love that car, but you're beginning to have some doubts about it, aren't you? Because something's being sold to you that, has, that is untried and you can't have any confidence in it. Or the conversation might go like this. You go along to the man and you say, uh, did you switch this engine on? Did you try it? And he say, yes, you know we did. And what happened? Well, actually, we think it will start from this point onwards. It didn't start when we switched it on, but don't worry about it. We've sorted that. Did you drive it around the block? Yeah. The brakes work? Well, we've repaired what happened to the front of the car and we're sure it won't happen again. <laughs> Oil in the sump? You know, this is the first car we've ever had from him where there was no oil in the sump, but we've changed the engine. Now you're saying, hey, I don't want this car. Why not? It's been tested. And the man says it's been fixed, but you don't want it. You're a difficult customer, you are. If it hasn't been tested, you don't want it. And now that it has been tested, you don't want it either. You're the customer, the kind of customer that worries salesmen to death. The Lord Jesus needs to be able to rely upon people in whom he has confidence. And the only way that he can have confidence in you because he's not going to use people who are untested. The only way that he can have confidence in you or in me is that he tests us 
to see how we do. And I said to you before that a trial from the Lord is not to pull you down. A trial from the Lord is not to count you out. A trial from the Lord is there to turn you into the kind of Christian he always wanted you to be. That you may be perfect. The idea is that you may be mature and complete with nothing lacking. Not even one thing that's going wrong in your Christian life. And with such people, God is well pleased and ready to use them in his service. Verse 5, and with this I finish. If any of you lack wisdom, well, we all lack wisdom to a certain extent, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What does this mean in the context? It's not something just branching off in something new. It's continuing the theme. If any of you lack wisdom, what is this wisdom? I think this wisdom is the ability to see what happened to you as God sees it. For example, in a war, in a battle, the field commander calls a captain into his camp and says to him, now look, I want you and your men to guard that hill over there to the last man standing. The enemy must not come through or get past. Right, sir, you say. And you go back to your troops and say, right, fellows, this hill needs defending. And uh, the men look at it and say, that place? We've all got to die for that? You've got the wrong place, sir. Right, says he, I'll go back to the captain, I'll go back to the commander and see. Just check, make sure. And so when he goes back to the commander's tent, the commander said, yes, that's the place. Let me show you this. And he opens up the big map. You see, the fellows and their captain only saw the little map. Now he opens up the big map and says, look, can you see now? Then you can see all around the placements of the enemy. Can you see from the big picture that if that goes, it's all gone? And he says, yes, sir, I can see that. We'll defend it to the last man standing. And you go back to the troops and he says, fellows, he showed me the big picture. And this is important. We'll do it. You see, when you've been looking at your trial and trouble, you've seen it through a kind of telescope. God sees it differently. And if you can't understand why it's happened to you, if anybody lacks the ability to see it the way God sees it, what is he to do? Let him ask. Let him ask of God. I was in a store recently in a big city and uh, you had plenty of goods but nobody to sell them. And uh, there was a sign which said, ask here. Except there was nobody there to ask. But when we are told to ask, there's somebody there 24-7 who will be delighted to go through with you what you've been going through and explain to you what it's all about. On the other hand, you might decide to wait. And we remember those words with which I close. Not till the loom is silent 
and the shuttle cease to fly? Will God unroll the canvas, the big picture, and show the reason why the dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned? And he's a pattern planned for you. May God bless his word. Thank you for listening.